to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Deuteronomy chapters 2 through 7. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A S lowercase S K hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen O T. Getting into the heart of Deuteronomy, you're going to notice several ideas crop up again and again. Follow God and you will live. Love the Lord your God. God is merciful, yet jealous. Listen and obey. The Exodus is a sign and symbol of God's powerful love for you. Now, these ideas are not unique to Deuteronomy, but they get the majority of their fleshing out here in this book. Now, some of these ideas might seem like an ancient Near Eastern version of karmic justice. If you do right, it'll be done right to you, while if you do wrong, it will not be done right for you. Uh, and much of this idea of karmic justice, of, of God's sort of divine return on investment, if you will, uh, much of this idea is the very idea that Job is going to rail against when we get to his story later in the Old Testament. But at this point in the story, the people of Israel seem convinced that God rewards the faithful and punishes the faithless. Perhaps they thought, well, that's what happened in Egypt, after all. We were liberated because of our faithfulness, and Pharaoh was punished because of his faithlessness. But I want you to remember that God's covenant love, the the focus of this section of Deuteronomy, God's covenant love doesn't rely on human faithfulness. That's what makes it God's covenant love, not God's contractual love. The covenant is independent of human obedience or disobedience because, and this is great news, we tend to keep covenants poorly. Now, as we get to our reading, in Deuteronomy 2, there's a rehashing of the journey out of the wilderness up through the countries and people who border, who surround the promised land. And in each case, whenever the Israelites would be passing through another country, they would be reminded how much weaker and smaller they were than the countries that surrounded them. It was only by the power of God Almighty that they survived the journey through the wilderness, and it will only be by the power of God Almighty that they will survive the journey into the promised land. Now, in Deuteronomy 3, there's a ton of discussion about this guy, King Og, uh, and he's worth discussing in detail. Og is described as a giant. There's no two ways around it. Um, Verse 11 of chapter 3 describes Og's bed, which is kind of odd until you start looking into this. So Og's bed is made of iron. And that is strange in and of itself. I mean, many of us uh, have metal bed frames and whatnot, but iron was a precious resource at this time, right around the time of the Iron Age, where it would be used to make weapons. And for Og to have a bed of iron is similar to uh, the Throne of Swords in Game of Thrones, where it says something about the character of the person who sleeps on a bed of iron. This is someone who is so tough, he's willing to be surrounded by weapons at all times. But it's not just the quality of the bed that is stunning, it's the quantity of the bed. This bed is 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Nobody needs a bed this big, and it suggests that his bed was somehow unique because he as a person was somehow unique. He, it, Og is described as the last of the Rephaim, 
These are perhaps related to the Nephilim from Genesis 6. The Nephilim, you may remember, are a race of giant demigods, allegedly produced as offspring between the sons of God and the daughters of men. This is the very beginning of Genesis 6, this strange story right before God sends the flood. Now, there are some folks, uh, some scholars even, who want to justify the violence by which Israel took possession of the promised land, and they'll point to this story, along with the story of the spies who saw giants or Anakim in the land. Uh, they'll say that Israel was charged to finish the job that the flood should have done, that is, to wipe out all these giant demigods who want to challenge human beings for the lordship of creation given to humans by God in Genesis 1. This is a, uh, a deep stream, I think, of the biblical story that gets at some of the early Hebrew um, mythology, that, that God was sort of the chief God among several lesser gods, and these lesser gods sometimes wanted to challenge for the right to the throne. Um, and, and they challenged this through certain ways. Some of these ways were through trying to get their own genes in the gene pool of human beings, who the true God had anointed as kings and queens over creation sort of thing. So that's kind of the sketch of the argument. Regardless of whether this was the case, we do have record here in Deuteronomy that the giant King Og was slain at the hands of Israel. And this would have been a reminder to future generations of God's covenant love and faithfulness. This is, in some sense, um, the original David and Goliath story. And uh, the David and Goliath story is itself uh, another expression of God's triumph over these gigantic demigods. But we'll get to that once we get to 1 Samuel. Now, Moses, after being denied once again entrance to the promised land by God after he asks again, Moses begins his final address to the Israelites before finally passing the leadership of the people to Joshua. And it's in chapter 4 that we begin to see the themes to which Moses will return again and again in this address. The phrase, Hear, O Israel, is super important in Deuteronomy. The Israelites were what's known as an aniconic people. They, they were not a fan of icons. They were very iconoclastic. Um, uh, they, they opposed idolatry. And so because of this, they could not depict God. All of their experience with God was oral, A-U-R-A-L, uh, through the ears. They heard it. Instead of making idols, they hear and they listen to their God. Any visual epiphany is really the manifestation of, the, of a sound. Like Moses, Moses describes Sinai as a sound that they saw. Maybe this is a description of the thunder that happened at Sinai. And when you, when you hear a noise, you can sometimes, like a, a deep or loud enough noise, you can sometimes feel it in your bones and almost see it in a synesthetic sort of way. So uh, we also receive the first inklings of the idea of exile in this chapter. And that's one of the reasons that has prompted some scholars to suggest that Deuteronomy was written, at least in part, while Israel was in exile. They were reflecting back on their own unfaithfulness. The idea of losing the possession of the land if the people act unfaithfully. The idea of losing possession of the land if they become another Egypt is sort of what, what, what this is saying. This idea is a new one and reflects the idea of karmic justice that Deuteronomy favors. Yet in spite of this, 
if they are taken away, if Israel is taken into exile, God will still show mercy to the chosen people because, and note this, not because they're righteous, but because they're God's special possession. God's covenant outlasts our errors and our sin. God's love pursues us to the grave and beyond. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God whose laws the Israelites want to ensure that they obey. Deuteronomy 5 retells the Ten Commandments with several minor edits. There are a couple of larger expansions, however, which are worth investigating. So in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day commandment, Deuteronomy explicitly includes slaves as those whose Sabbath rest was crucial. It reminds Israel that they were once slaves in Egypt. The idea behind this motivation in the commandment is an idea that all Christians would benefit from internalizing. We sometimes see folks as less than us or or ourselves as greater than others, as Israel may have been tempted to see slaves. They may have seen slaves and thought, well, shoot, they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's not what the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy suggests. Instead, it suggests one law, both for those who are enslaved and the same law for those who are not. That we are to treat all people equally um, because God has put God's image in all people. Uh, One way that we see this in our culture today, or that we don't see this rather, is our discrimination against children. There's been talk this week as the CDC has relaxed some of the masking guidance for those who are vaccinated. There's been talk about um, going without masks places, which is well and good. But then we begin thinking that vaccinations have only just opened up for children and youth uh, ages 12 to 16. Uh, that, that children who are below the age of 12 have not even begun to have access to vaccinations. And, and we have to ask ourselves... What are we modeling to our children if we say that, you know, you have to wear a mask, but I don't? Um, All of us were children at some point in time, and we needed people to have patience with us, to nurture us, to care for us. And therefore, we also must show care to children in our midst. We must show care to anyone who might look or act differently than we do. We are not called to hold people in bondage as Egypt did, but to be the anti-Egypt, to seek the liberation of all who we meet. And that's going to, at times, mean that we lay our privilege aside for the benefit of other people. Uh, and, And so I would encourage you, particularly if you work with children, do your best, even if you're vaccinated, to continue to mask as an example for those you serve. Because even slaves were given a Sabbath. Let's make sure that we can give children a Sabbath, perhaps by, you know, showing them that we're with them. The um, the other commandment that's expanded upon is the honor your father and mother commandment. And it's got an additional promise that is attached onto it here. that, That your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, some of this promise is a natural consequence of our actions, I think. When our children see us treating our parents with love, respect, and honor, well, they're going to be more likely to treat us with love, respect, and honor. 
But I think some of this also offers a pedagogical tool, a didactic tool to encourage the following of the commandment. Instead of just supplying a stick, you got to do this or God will judge you, Deuteronomy supplies a carrot. Do this and it will go well with you. And I think that we see this in Deuteronomy frequently. Deuteronomy uh, will say at times, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, Deuteronomy does believe this, but Deuteronomy wants to give its readers, its hearers more than just this. There's more to offer than just, well, because God. Instead, Deuteronomy regularly maps out incentives for following God's laws. And these incentives revolve around choosing life that you might live. And they sound similar, in some respects, to a karmic justice model of you do right, right will come to you. You do wrong, wrong will come to you. And again, this isn't fully accurate because bad things do happen to good people. But this is how Deuteronomy seems to understand God's covenant love. And it's perhaps one way that we would teach children about God's covenant love. uh, Because we can't teach children about God's love with all of its nuance right at the beginning of their relationship with God. And so we got to teach it to them imperfectly, um, to add nuance later on. This is one of the ways we can begin doing this. Now we get to Deuteronomy 6, and and Deuteronomy 6 is one of the first and truest catechisms in the Hebrew Bible. Verses 4 through 9 are so well known that they're just simply called the Shema. It's a Hebrew word that means hear or listen. It's, It's what begins this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus, in fact, uses the Shema to answer a religious expert when the religious expert asks Jesus, well, what's the greatest commandment? The Shema was a big deal to the Hebrew people. So let's explore it. What does it mean then to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength? Well, the Hebrew terms for heart, soul, and strength are interesting, and they expose some of the different assumptions we have about the body and soul, assumptions different to those that the Hebrews had. The heart, or lev in Hebrew understanding, wasn't just the seat of emotions, but also the seat of thought, the seat of understanding. When we say heart, we sometimes mean the touchy-feely aspect of things. When the Hebrews said heart, they didn't just mean that, but they also meant the mind. So loving the Lord with all our heart isn't about not thinking too hard about our God. In fact, just the opposite. We need to bring the entirety of our inmost being to God by bringing our hearts. The life of our feelings, the life of our mind, all of this is what we love the Lord our God with. And then we get to love the Lord your God with all your soul. Soul here is the Hebrew term nephesh. It literally means the very self or or the life breath of a person. It can also mean a person's passion or a person's appetite. Maybe the best way of understanding the nephesh, at least in this respect, is that thing that animates us. We love God, in other words, with everything that brings us life. This isn't a, my soul loves God, my body doesn't want to wake up and go to church. That's not what loving God with all our soul means. No, when we love God with all our souls, with all our nephesh, that means loving God with the driving force of our being. All of that which keeps us alive. We love God with all of that. And then finally, we get to loving God with all our strength. This is a funny one because ma'od, the Hebrew word translated as strength, usually means very. Like, I'd like that very much, thank you. 
we're called by this passage to love God with all our very. To love God, in other words, exceedingly. Or, and this is maybe my favorite translation, to love God with all your muchness. It's sort of like a blanket covering of anything that isn't covered under the heart, lave, or the soul, nefesh. Throw that in to your love for God also. So, okay, what does it look like to love the Lord our God with all our lave, with all our nefesh, and with all our me'od? Well, fundamentally, this looks like teaching all those who look up to you and respect you, including children if you have them, about the God you love. That's what we do with anything we love. We talk about it. Uh, the, The people who know us learn about it, whether they want to or not, because it's always something that we talk about, that we even obsess about at times. Uh, And when people ask us why we love God with all of our muchness, well, what do we say? We say we love God with all our muchness because God liberated us from bondage out of all the people in the whole world. God spoke to us and said, I am who I am, but then went on to say, I am the Lord, your God. And then went on to say, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, we love God because of God's covenant love for us. And that's why we keep God's commandments. That's why we're willing to put our entire being on the line. All the life of our mind and our heart, all the life of that which animates us, all of our muchness, this is how we love God, because God first loved us. So we get to chapter 7, and Moses' attention leaves the people of Israel and turns instead to those who currently inhabit the land. And there is to be no mercy for these people. None of their gods are to survive the encounter with the Israelites. None of their descendants, those which live, if any, are to be welcomed in the land. We've discussed in earlier uh, shows some of the moral issues with these sorts of commands, particularly when we were in the book of Numbers. Some of this in Deuteronomy might reflect the wish of later generations that their ancestors would have actually finished the job. As we'll see in Joshua, while Israel chases out many of the current inhabitants of the promised land, they kind of get complacent about halfway through, and they don't uh, totally put all the people of Canaan under the ban. They don't totally destroy all the people of Canaan. And we see some of the other claims that are made in this chapter, claims like there's going to be no illness, no sterility. This seems like language that isn't just promised land language. This seems like language of new heaven and new earth, like eternal life, the hope of our, you know, our, our resurrection hope. So I, I wonder how literally the Deuteron- the, that Deuteronomy means this. And then finally, in verse 13 of chapter 7, each of the blessings, the, the, the blessings of grain, of wine, of oil, cattle, uh, the, the spawn of the flock, all of these blessings are intentionally reflective of a different Canaanite deity. Each of the words that's used for grain, wine, oil, the, the seed of the cattle, the spawn of the flock, all of these words are special versions of these words that um, essentially what's being said is that the blessings 
each of these Canaanite gods claims to have authority over, Yahweh actually can give any and all of them. So the charge is to worship and serve no other god. God alone shall you love, deserting all others. In light of all this, in light of God's covenant love for the people of Israel and for you, I wonder what blessings you're pursuing in your life today. Are they blessings that you believe God will give you? I want to remind us, God is not a God of health, wealth, and prosperity. Karmic justice is not so much what God's about, despite the belief of Deuteronomy. You can't force God's hand with your good behavior, in other words. However, you can respond to God's covenant love for you by loving God with everything you have and all you are. That's what we're called to do, looking to God alone for the grace we need and loving God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our muchness. That's all for Deuteronomy 2 through 7. Next week, we're going to read Deuteronomy 8 through 11, and then we'll skip to 26 and 27. In this uh, part of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds Israel of God's expectations for them in the promised land, and Moses also helps renew the covenant that was broken at Sinai. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.